isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. She suggested that we talk about some of the demoted national parks, places that were originally national parks but have since been downgraded in their status. And demoted has, there's a lot of judgment in that word, isn't there? Like they, they could call it something else. Uh, I think it should be downgraded. Or that's, yeah, because there's no judgment there. How about, how about reassigned or renamed? But yeah, yeah there, there is such thing as demoted national parks. These were national park, national parks in the National Park Service system that later they just they tapped them on the shoulder and said, we're sending you back down. You're not cutting it. Right. <laughs> This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. This is our monthly mailbag episode where we answer questions from listeners about the national parks, hiking trails, trip itineraries, camping and backpacking, and a lot of other travel-related topics. On today's episode, we're discussing van life and the pros and cons of living in a van while traveling throughout our public lands. We'll also give our opinion about whether it's safe to camp at Big Bend National Park right next to the Mexican border. Plus, did you know that there were once some national parks that have been demoted? We'll talk about a few of them and explain why they were downgraded. And we'll share one of the funniest things that happened to us on our journey to visit all the U.S. national parks. Lots of great questions coming up next. All right, Karen, before we get into these fascinating and interesting questions, we have some news about the America the Beautiful annual pass that we need to share with our listeners. Yes, there is a big change coming for new annual pass holders. Starting on January 1st, so this is January 1st of 2024, you will no longer be able to share your America the Beautiful annual pass. Now, this is for new passes they issue. There will only be one signature line on the back of the card, so a single pass holder instead of two. Currently, there's two places for signatures. Well, right, so you can share your pass with anyone, actually. You can share it with your partner, your neighbor, your sibling, anyone who signs the back of the pass along with you. But I guess, Matt, what has been happening is that there's been some fraud with these cards. I think what people have done in the past is they buy this $80 annual pass for a big trip that they have. You know, maybe they're spending two weeks going to five or six parks. Then when they're done, they resell the pass to someone else. And that's a no-no. You're not supposed to transfer or resell the pass. That's why the National Park Service is now cracking down on that. What if you just share your pass with a friend and then they buy you a beer for the favor? 
You mean share it instead of sell it? Yeah. Well, see, but then they're not buying a pass. And so the park is losing out on revenue. I mean, this is going to be disappointing to a lot of people who share their pass with, let's say, their spouse, and they travel separately, unlike us, <laughs> who are always yeah, together. Always there. Right. <laughs> I'm always there. Six inches away. <laughs> you can't get rid of me. <laughs> but it is good news for the parks because they're going to get a lot more revenue from this. All right. So that is going into effect January 1st, 2024. But... Also note that for all the people who have recently bought this pass and have the two signatures on the back, of course, your passes will be good until they expire. So it's not like they're going to crack down on everybody on January 1st. It's just the new ones that are issued will have the single signature line. And also keep in mind that when you're using this pass, the two signature version or the one signature version, it allows everyone in the vehicle with you if you're driving through the entrance kiosk, right? Everyone in the vehicle gets in also. So that's still in effect. And children under 15 are admitted free also. That's right. So your past old one, new one will still be good for driver and the the people in, in the driver's car. So I have a question. Yes. It says that children ages 15 or under are admitted free. Yes. So why is there such thing as a a fourth grade pass? So the fourth graders get in free for the year they're in fourth grade. Now, (laughs) unlike you and I, who we were over the age of 15 in fourth grade, so... So that's a whole different story, right? But like, why do fourth graders need a pass if if they're under age 15? That's a really good question, Matt. I think the answer to that is it's more for their parents than it is for the fourth grader, right? It's their family gets in free because obviously the parents would have to pay to take their fourth grader. So it's a fourth grader pass, but it's really for their family, for their parents who wouldn't have to pay. That was a pretty quick answer. Quick on your feet. (laughs) That's what I am. Uh, And remember, too, that when you buy your America the Beautiful annual pass or any pass, whether it's your senior pass, any pass, the park where you buy this pass gets to keep 80% of the revenue. 80% of what you're paying stays within that park. So you might want to buy your pass in either your local national park or maybe your favorite national park. Whichever park you want 80% of your money to go to. Exactly. So yes, big change coming on January 1st. Okay, Karen, what is our first mailbag question? Could you could you get the mailbag? I'm sorry, I left it on the table over there. All right, hold on. Let me grab it. Just a second. I'm getting it. Okay, let me pull the first one out. Let's see. All right, this one comes from Tom. Tom's question is, have you ever considered the van life? And do you have any observations on those van life people that we see hiding in the shadows everywhere we go? <laughs> okay, Tom. So um, in the question, there's a few clues to, to Tom's opinion about van lifers. I, I don't remember any van life folks hiding in shadows anywhere we go. Um, they're, they're right out in the open. Right, right. Uh, a lot of them are very friendly people. Yes, and there are a lot of van life folks these days. We'll answer the first part of your question first because it's an easy one. And the answer is no. <laughs> no, no. We have a van that doesn't have wheels and it's attached to the ground. It has a front door and a back door. It has three bedrooms. <laughs> 
Uh, we are not van life people. You know, we're just not. I'm kind of a homebody. I love our home. As much as we love to travel, I love to come home to our house. So we are, we're not. Um, we're not van lifers. <laughs> we're not van lifers. And we couldn't be van lifers. And we're going to talk about some of the things that van lifers deal with. And that kind of explains why we could never be van lifers. Well, we could get two vans. <laughs> just, we would be caravan lifers. Maybe that that, that that would be best for us. Pool or a pond. Okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> now, first of all, Tom, as everyone realizes, van life is going to look a lot different depending on a couple of factors. And one is, what kind of van do you have? Yeah, that's, that's right. Did you find this van and fix it up and it cost you like a total of $5,000? Or is it a $200,000 plus Mercedes Sprinter van that's completely customized? Those are two different van life experiences. Right. We know some people, some friends of ours who converted a plumbing van to take on their adventures and they sleep in the back. They made a bed and they have a mattress and um, they did a fantastic job and they're out having fun. But much, much different than, like you said, Matt, these Sprinter vans that have a kitchen and a bathroom and a big screen TV. So if you don't have a van with a bathroom, obviously finding places to go to the bathroom and take showers can be a huge hassle. Um, some van lifers who we follow on Instagram have gym memberships at, you know, those gyms that are chains. Right. Yeah, like a Planet Fitness. Right, yeah. across the country so that they can stop in and shower when they need to. Yeah, and depending on your age, this uh, issue of where you are going to go to the bathroom is is, is always with you, right? <laughs> As soon as you're done, you're thinking about the next time you have to go to the bathroom, which is like 20 minutes later. You know, these Sprinter vans, I know that some of them are really nice and they have bathrooms inside. I need a probably a little bit bigger of a bathroom than most people because, especially like for the showering, I mean, I need room for my arms to swing and bending over okay. and stuff. I don't know, I don't know okay. that I, that's going to happen. I don't know what you're doing in, in the shower, but a Sprinter I, feel van. Like, I feel like that's a little bit too much personal information. <laughs> I thought you wanted me to just... Be myself. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe not 100%. Okay, another factor that's going to determine, you know, your enjoyment and satisfaction with van life is the work issue. So are you completely retired from working life and you're just out seeing the country? Or are you trying to work remotely? Because working remotely, you know, brings up a whole lot of challenges. Yeah, especially the finding the Wi-Fi connections. I know some people are now doing Starlink, so they're carrying the Starlink with them. That's kind of an expensive uh, utility to have, although if it's your business, it's a, it's a business expense. But yeah, I mean, there's so many times when we're just driving from one place to the next and we don't even realize it, but for two hours of that driving, we're just in a complete dead zone. Right. A lot of van lifers who we follow on Instagram, they work out of coffee shops and that's their life. You know, they'll go to a coffee shop for a half day or a whole day and do their work, then get back in their van. So, so that's a consideration too. Another thing, I didn't realize this until I started digging into it, but a lot of van lifers are trying to find free campsites every night, free places to park their van and sleep. And that is also apparently difficult to do, as opposed to paying to stay in a campground at a campsite. Right. So while you're thinking about where you're going to go to the bathroom next, you're looking for your free campsite. And and people have told us, 
sometimes that takes up the majority of their day is finding the next campsite. Exactly. So that leads us into, you know, since we don't have a lot of experience with van life, I found this great blog post from the website is Always the Adventure. And this couple, they are van lifers, young, you know, late 20s. And they outlined some of the issues. And we're just going to talk about these briefly, because it brings up a lot of, you know, thoughtful things that we wouldn't have considered. Uh, Now, the first one, Matt, is you just mentioned finding free parking is harder than you think. Right. And you can do that from time to time. There's a lot of dispersed camping in certain public places. But um, yeah, if you're not finding those free spots, you got to stay somewhere. And if you go to, let's say, the national parks and they're camping, I mean, you can pay $30 a night to park your van. And as this blogger pointed out, if you're going to do that, that's $900 a month. Well, exactly. And actually, $30 a night is a bargain in the national parks. The campsites can range anywhere from 30 to 60 Yeah, so 900 a month. They're talking about in this blog post how one of their main reasons for doing this was because they didn't want to pay rent on an apartment, which was 1500 a month. But if you're paying 900 a month to sleep in campgrounds, that eats up your savings right there. Right. Now, in some places, or especially in cities, you can find, and I know uh, some Walmarts allow you to stay overnight in their parking lot. Some Cracker Barrel restaurants do as well. And there's, there's other national chains, but you really do need to check with that specific store if they allow it, because it's not a universal policy for a lot of these companies. And That can be a kind of a dicey situation also because, let's say you're at a Walmart that allows it, you're going to be there with other boondockers, and that has sometimes security issues. Right. They pointed out in this this blog post that they try to avoid the Walmart parking lots because they have uh, run into some sketchy people there, so that's an issue also. Another thing they mentioned was that things will break and need fixing a lot, as you can imagine. Yeah, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, The third point was van life is a lot of hard work. We kind of touched on that. You are always looking for water, parking, dump stations, all that kind of stuff. That's right. Yeah. We don't want a lot of work. Not when we're out on vacation. No. Although this, again, this isn't vacation. This is their life. This is their life. Right. And then another uh, issue that they pointed out is like there are some days that are just downright boring. If you are a van lifer. You can't get away from van life. Right. Right. I mean, you, right. you could go to a motel from time to time. You could stay with friends. But, you know, even with your nine to five job, you know, that's only eight hours of the 24. You're still in your van. Also, and I think this is pretty obvious, cold or rainy weather sucks. And I'll quote this from the article. Some of the most discouraging days have been those in which we've been trapped in the van, unable to go outside or even keep the door open because of precipitation, end quote. And, you know, we have been a few times when we have been backpacking, we have been stuck in our tent when it's raining. We literally have had to climb in our tent at like four in the afternoon and not come out again because of the bad weather. Yeah, you can definitely feel trapped when you're stuck in a small space, unable to go outside. And that ties in with their next point, the effect that van life can have on your mental health, right? right. The stress of 
finding locations, uh, being in a new location often, it just kind of the feeling of displacement, being confined in a, a small space. I mean, those all add up over time and can affect people's mental health. Well, sure. And especially as they pointed out, being confined to a small space with another person. I mean, you can't get away from the person, basically. You're pointing at me. This is an audio-only podcast. And uh, I think this this little uh, answer to our question has, has turned on us. All right. So continuing on, they wrote, there is a big social stigma against van life. And then this is interesting. Uh, The next one was your life becomes messy in every sense. Yeah, I don't like messy. I know you don't. I don't like messy in any sense. And if you go on social media, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever, and you see these, uh, you know, perfectly cleaned, organized vans, well, they spent two days getting it like that so they could take the picture or, or take the video. It's not as glamorous as social media can make it seem. And here's another one that's not glamorous at all is pests, meaning I think mostly rodents, can infest your van. Yeah, your van's going to smell. It's going to smell of food because that's where all your food is. And, you know, those little those little rodents are going to find any way in that they can. You turn your back. I am not kidding you. You have the door open. You turn your back for two minutes and they'll jump in. They'll climb up on the tire, get into the engine, follow the air ducts into the truck. One chewed through my air filter to get into the truck. Yeah, they, they, they're crafty. They are crafty. And it's a big problem, not just mice, but also, I guess, raccoons and other small rodents, not just coming into the van and being a nuisance inside the van, but also in the engine, I guess, chewing through wires and, and things. Didn't we see in that RV park we were in when we rented an RV? People put things underneath. People put things around the perimeter. Right. To they keep- put those tube lights or snake lights. So like the Christmas lights that, that come in a plastic tube, you know, that, that are flexible. They would wrap that around their vehicle at night and turn the lights on because they said rodents won't cross over that light. And so it keeps them from going up in the engine. Yeah, so pests can be an issue. Another thing they pointed out is van life um, was more expensive than they thought it would be. And yes, they don't have you know a rent payment, but they still have insurance and internet and phone bills, and they have a van payment, gym memberships, and you know this kind of expensive hobby. And the van needs repairs and maintenance, and of course there's gas. You know the expenses do still add up even when you live in your van. And the last point they discussed was that they sometimes felt that life was passing them by. Van life kind of feels like you're standing still. You know, people are getting married, they're having kids, they're getting promoted, all of these things. And you're in your van traveling and admittedly at times having these incredible adventures in in our wonderful outdoor places. But it feels like everyone else is getting on with their life while you're vacationing. So those were some of the negatives, but of course they closed it out with a very positive note. Yeah, and you know, here's the thing. Instagram doesn't always reflect real life, but sometimes it does. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those experiences are incredible. And that is the reward of van lifing and being out there and constantly being out in, in our incredible public places. 
Sure. And these people who wrote this blog post, their opinion was, even if the bad days outweigh the good days some months, the good ones are so incredible that it's 100% worth it for them. You know, I do think, though, it takes a particular type of person, right? We follow some van lifers who are single, who are just doing it on their own, both male and female. And I feel like you have to be okay with being alone a lot of the time. You don't necessarily have social networks because you are moving from place to place. So I don't want to call them loners because that kind of has a negative implication. But you have to be okay with solitude and with just being on your own. That's right. So if you're thinking about van life, Tom, our advice would be to try it first. You know, try renting for a period of time, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, something like that, because you'll learn a lot. We have so many friends who buy the Sprinter customized van and then use it twice uh, when they could have rented and like understood if if they would enjoy that um, activity. Well, exactly. And I do think you need to give it some time out when you are renting because we rented an RV for a week and it was fantastic. And we didn't run into these issues that these bloggers wrote about because we were only out for a week. I think it does take some time to really experience trying to find campsites and water and, um, you know, have that more remote aspect of it if you are considering van life. Um, anyway, I think, you know, for the people who do it and love it, it's obviously fantastic, but, you know, it's not for everyone. And it's definitely not for us. <laughs> so the, to answer your question, Tom, no, we haven't considered it. <laughs> All right, Karen, let's move on to our next question. Okay, this is a question about camping in Big Bend, and it comes from Anya, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Kirsten. There's a J in there, so Kirsten. Um, Kirsten. Well, yeah, I, I don't think it's pronounced Kirsten. Kirsten. I'm going to go with Kirsten. All right. All right. And they wrote, in a few weeks, we will be taking a one-month vacation and visiting seven national parks, which will put us at 31 national parks total by the end of this year. Our plan is to do car camping at Grand Canyon, Petrified Forest, Saguaro, White Sands, Carlsbad Caverns, Guadalupe Mountains, and Big Bend. One of our main concerns is, how safe is it to camp in Big Bend since it's so close to the Mexican border or is literally on the Mexican border? Have you heard any sad stories from other people about staying at Big Bend campgrounds? We would appreciate any information you have to share. Well, no, we have not heard of negative reports coming from any Big Bend campgrounds regarding its proximity to the Mexican border. You know, when we went, we stayed at Chisa's Mountain Lodge, um, so we did not camp in that park. But I did some digging so we could try to answer your question, and I found an article by Big Bend National Park Ranger Annie Gilliland, and she wrote, I wouldn't say the proximity to Mexico is a big safety concern. It just adds another layer to how we do some things. The park cooperates with the Mexican government where possible so that natural and cultural resources can be protected on both sides of the river. Border Patrol agents live and work in the park with us. 
Illegal border crossings do occasionally happen through parkland, but they typically don't create major threats for park visitors. Any incidents like theft involve communications between governments. And she closed it by saying Big Bend National Park is extremely remote in the U.S. and even more remote on the Mexican side. Given the desert's vastness, illegal border crossings are difficult and risky due to environmental hazards. You know, that's a big stretch of border there, that Big Bend area. It is. It's a 517-mile stretch of land that makes up the border between Mexico and Big Bend National Park. One of the natural barriers that helps the governments on both sides is the fact that the Rio Grande is the border. So you've got that natural barrier that makes it harder for people to cross. We read an article, and this was Phil Winston, who is a Big Bend Border Patrol agent, he said, speaking to people in Mexico who are considering crossing into the United States in, in the park, he's basically saying, look, once you cross the river, your journey into the United States has just begun. You are about to face anywhere from five days to three weeks of some of the hardest terrain you've ever crossed. So just getting across the border isn't the end of the journey. You know, the park is, it's a vast desert and civilization is nowhere close. Exactly. So at the Boquillas Canyon crossing, it's an 80 mile track from the Rio Grande to the nearest state highway. So just think these people are hiking 80 miles through this vast desert. I did read that so far in fiscal year 2023, Big Bend has recorded 63 rescues. And the rescues include these rescue beacon activations and 911 calls from migrants in distress. Yeah, the U.S. Border Patrol installed solar-powered rescue beacons throughout remote areas of the West Texas desert. The 30-foot-tall towers feature pictures and simple phrases in English and Spanish instructing migrants who are lost or injured or suffering from dehydration to push a red button that will alert authorities to their whereabouts. So it's good that they have those beacons out there. Otherwise, I mean, these these folks really have no choice but to to marshal on, and and sometimes they're just not going to make it. So... Anya and Kirsten. The point of saying all this is migrants crossing the border are facing a life and death situation ahead of them, and they're highly unlikely to spend any time committing crimes against park visitors. One more thing. I was reading online the National Park Law Enforcement Incident Reports, which I tend to like to read. I know that's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. <laughs> I was looking at the one for Big Bend. And just for the past couple of years, and every single law enforcement call was for non-border crossing related issues. And most of them, and this is what what visitors are going to run into, this is the kind of trouble, most of them were, were from hikers in distress from heat and dehydration. Yeah, we were there in late October, because it was right at Halloween time, I remember, because the chili cook-off was was the next weekend after we were there. So late October, you would think, okay, the weather's going to be mild. We did a couple of desert hikes. I remember it being over 90 degrees on those hikes that we were doing in the desert. It it felt like full-on summer. They issue warnings throughout the year about heat stroke and things like that. So I think that is the biggest possible danger you're going to face and not uh, people trying to cross the border into the United States. Okay. That's an... 
That's a very long answer to Anya and Kajurston's question of whether or not it's safe to camp in Big Bend National Park. Yes, I hope this puts your mind at ease and that you have a wonderful trip. What a great lineup of parks. All right, Karen, let's keep it moving. Um, Do we have another question? We do. This isn't so much a question as a suggestion of something to talk about, but it's so interesting. This comes from a listener named September. What a pretty name is that? She suggested that we talk about some of the demoted national parks, places that were originally national parks, but have since been downgraded in their status. And demoted has, there's a lot of judgment in that (laughs) word, isn't there? Like they they could call it something else. I think it should be downgraded. Or that's, yeah, because there's no judgment there. How about about, um, reassigned or Mm -hmm. renamed? But yeah, yeah, there, there is such thing as demoted national parks these were national park national parks in the national park service system that later they just they tapped them on the shoulder and said we're sending you back down you're not cutting it right (laughs) now we just have time to talk about two of these there are some more when you dig into it a lot of the ones that say they were demoted they were actually just renamed and uh, maybe the boundaries changed a little bit Right. For instance, General Grant National Park was established in 1890 to protect the second largest giant sequoia in this part of the Sierras, the General Grant Tree. But in 1940, General Grant National Park was folded into Kings Canyon National Park. And today, the area that was once General Grant National Park is called General Grant's Grove. But these two that we're going to talk about were actually demoted or downgraded or however you want to say it. All right, the first one we're going to talk about is Mackinac National Park. And this was actually the second national park ever established in the United States. So this would have been right after Yellowstone. And this was back in 1875. President Ulysses S. Grant signed the bill that established Mackinac National Park. Now it's located on Mackinac Island in Michigan. This is right between... Lower Michigan and the Upper Peninsula part of of Michigan, right there on the water. Right. And it was in operation from 1875 to 1895. So for 20 years, it was a national park. And it became a popular tourist destination. It attracted visitors from all across the country, as it would when you name a place a national park. People wanted to admire the area's natural beauty, the historic sites, And the visitors in the park, they could explore the island's forests, the cliffs, the beaches, as well as the historic landmarks like Fort Mackinac, which was established by the British in the late 1700s. However, despite its popularity, the park faced a number of challenges. Now, just like in Yellowstone, the Army was responsible for enforcing park regulations and maintaining the infrastructure, but they struggled to manage the park, and there were conflicts between park officials and local residents who resented the federal government's control over the island. In addition, the park lacked the spectacular natural features that had made Yellowstone and Yosemite and some of the other Western national parks so famous and so popular. So what they did in 1895, so 20 years later, after it became a national park, Mackinac National Park, it was transferred to the state of Michigan. So the state had control and the park was renamed Mackinac Island State Park. 
And today, Mackinac Island is still one of Michigan's most popular tourist destinations with over a million visitors a year. That's right. Now, we had a chance to visit about 10 years ago with our friends Bob and Sue. They have a cabin on Lake Michigan, and we went to stay with them for a while. Interestingly, though, the folks up there, they don't call them cabins. They call them cottages. Right. Cottage country of Michigan. Now, one of the interesting things about Mackinac Island is that it's car-free, and it's been car-free for more than 125 years. So there's a lot of bicycles, horse-drawn carriages everywhere. Karen, it seems quaint. It did seem quaint. It was like a step back in time. And um, it was fun to see. Now, most visitors, since you cannot drive to the island, most visitors get there by ferry, which is how we got there. And, you know, we just went for the day. We wandered around the cute shops. We had lunch. Um, The one thing I was disappointed about, though, there is a very famous historic hotel there, the Grand Hotel. Uh, I had really wanted to go and see it and maybe have a drink there, but they don't allow any non-hotel guests to go there and enter the hotel unless you pay a fee. And I believe it's like $10 a person. We did not feel welcome because we weren't welcome. Well, no, but here's the thing, Matt. In hindsight, why didn't we just pay the 10 bucks and go see it? I feel like it would have been worth it. (laughs) Maybe because we were with Bob. (laughs) I still still have that $10. And so Bob still has his $10 that we did give the Grand Hotel. I would like to stay there sometime. So the Grand Hotel opened its doors in 1887 as a summer retreat for vacationers who traveled to Michigan by train and then came to Mackinac Island via steamer and boat. So a very historic, beautiful looking hotel from what I've seen from the photos. (laughs) Now, here is an interesting thing for all of you passport stamp collectors out there and this was a tip that one of our instagram followers named ron Mm -hmm. uh, sent us if you are on the island and you find a state park ranger and ask them about the national park stamp it's not a national park but they do have a stamp that says mackinac national park matter of fact ron visited in 2021 he got the stamp and he mailed it to us yes and he told us that he asked the park ranger and it was kind of like the secret like the ranger pulled it out of a drawer and the ranger would not let ron use the stamp the ranger had to stamp the pieces of paper that ron had so it's not on display and they don't let you personally hold it because <laughs> what's it like somebody's gonna like take <laughs> Take off running. And, well, but you're on an island. How far can you get? I know, but these days you just never know. So if you go and you collect passport stamps, definitely take your passport book with you and ask a park ranger about this. And obviously, this is not an original National Park stamp because the passport stamp program started in 1986. So there was no stamp back in 1875 to 1895 when this was a national park. Yeah, but that's kind of fun. You you put that in the back of your book, like right. under special stamps where you have the 
cactuses and the dinosaur stamps and those kinds of things. Exactly. So a fun place to visit, what a lot of people do, I wish we would have done, is they rent bikes and you can ride the all around the island. It's not that big and uh, see some cool stuff. So if you are in northern Michigan, definitely go see what used to be Mackinac National Park. Yeah. And now that they have e-bikes, they didn't have e-bikes back when we visited. No, With no. the e-bikes, I, we just... Crank the throttle <laughs> until the battery runs out, and then we'll walk back back to the ferry and go home. Exactly. <laughs> okay, now the second national park we wanted to talk about, and I had never heard of this before, is Platte National Park. That was a national park from 1906 to 1976, so 70 years. It was a national park located in southern Oklahoma. Yeah, it had a good long run. It did. 70 years. Yeah, this, this park was named after Orville Hitchcock Platt. He was a U.S. senator back in the day who played a key role in establishing the park. Now, the park covered an area of 840 acres, which isn't a huge area of land, right? But it right. was known for its scenic beauty in therapeutic mineral springs. That, that was the park's attraction. And it thrived in the 1950s because Americans at that time were flocking to leisure activities like boating and camping. However, the conservation movement in the 1960s saw a push for more inspiring wilderness Ooh, burn. And, I know, and apparently Platte had streams but no raging rivers it had hills but no majestic mountains and so i guess people just didn't feel like it was worthy of a national park man it, it's got to be rough being a national park i mean boy probably every year when your park reviews they ask you are you do you have majestic beauty do you <laughs> Do you have inspiring wilderness? And if not, you're out. And apparently a lot of what people were visiting for, the features that they would go to see, were not natural. So during the New Deal, the Civilian Conservation Court came in and they planted hundreds of thousands of trees. They carved trails and they even piped spring water to pavilions. And Matt, they they also brought in a bison herd. They brought them in. They transplanted them. That's right. Did people feel like that that was not natural either? Well, I mean, they used to be natural, yeah. right, in, in southern Oklahoma. Anyway, in 1976, Platt was demoted. It was combined with a nearby reservoir, and it was rebranded the Chickasaw National Recreation Area. Okay, so Platt National Park mm -hmm. no longer exists. I don't know if they have a stamp, but they, it would be worth asking. Well, they <laughs> would have, yeah, they would have, uh, obviously, a Chickasaw National Recreation Area stamp, but, but if you asked a ranger nicely, would they pull the old stamp out yeah. of the drawer, which didn't exist in 1976 when they got demoted, but maybe maybe they're still doing that trick. Maybe so. Yeah. We'll have to find out the next time we go visit Chickasaw National Recreation Area. Okay. All right. So very fun. If you're interested, there are a lot of articles online. You just Google demoted national parks and you can read about some others as well. Okay. Karen, I think there's you're miss, you missed the very last envelope. It's at the bottom of the bag. Do you see it there? Okay, I've got it. So Let's professional. Let's see what it says. <laughs> All right, this one comes from Michaela. 
And Michaela and her family visited all 63 of the national parks in one year. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. You have to be very organized to pull that off, we found. Yeah, we, which, yeah which, which isn't us. <laughs> which is why it took us more than two years. Anyway, Michaela is asking us, what was the funniest thing that happened to us on our travels? Yeah, funniest thing. There are a lot of funny things. They weren't funny at the time, some of them. Later, they're funny. Exactly. You know, the national parks, visiting the national parks, it doesn't really lend itself to funny escapades. It's what the humans do. They're foibles that make for funny stories. Yeah, like us. Right, right. It's hard for us to choose because there's so many mortifying things that happen to us. It was a joke a minute. (laughs) When we went to the national parks, wasn't it? We had a hard time deciding which story to share because there were so many. Um, The story that we told on our Crater Lake episode about opening the door to our hotel room at Crater Lake Lodge and walking in on a naked couple, that's one of my personal favorites. I was thinking maybe the dump station incident when we rented the RV in southern Arizona. Oh, yeah, the one where your shoes didn't quite make it. That's a good one, too. I think my favorite, though, is the story of our ill-fated hike at Black Canyon of the Gunnison in Colorado. We had decided ahead of time that we wanted to hike the very short trail that led from the rim down to the river. It was only about a mile long. So how hard could that be? I'm going to read a short section from our book, Dear Bob and Sue, where I wrote about what happened. Okay, so this is what I wrote. We must look soft. Ranger Betty at the Black Canyon of the Gunnison Visitor Center seemed to think so. We told her that we wanted to do the Gunnison Route hike from the rim of the canyon down to the river, but she strongly discouraged us. She listed many reasons why we shouldn't do that hike, emphasizing that even though it's one mile down to the river, it's a 1,800-foot vertical drop. It's so steep The Park Service installed an 80-foot chain a third of the way down the trail to assist hikers. Betty tried to convince us that we weren't prepared for the hike by pointing out that we didn't have gloves, we weren't wearing long pants, and we didn't have the recommended gallon of water each. But we insisted on trying anyway. We thought, it's a short hike. How hard could it be? Also, when somebody tells Karen she can't do something, it only makes her want to do it more. (laughs) Welcome to my world, Ranger (laughs) Betty. Hikers are required to get a backpack permit and listen to an orientation talk before attempting this hike. Betty prepared our permit and then got out her notebook with the orientation script. She began to take us through the orientation. What plants we would encounter, stinging nettle and poison ivy were my favorites, how to use the chain, etc., about three minutes into the orientation, Karen wandered off to look at postcards. (laughs) Ranger Betty stopped her presentation, whistled to get Karen's attention, and motioned her back. I'm going to have to interrupt you there for a minute. (laughs) First of all, thanks for throwing me under the bus when you wrote that. Second, in my defense, you know, this was the first time we ever applied for a permit for any place. And this was also one of our first parks that we visited along this journey. So I had no clue. I thought that if you listened, she was putting your name on yeah. the permit. I thought only one of us needed to yeah. be aware of all of these things. <laughs> I know that's what you thought. 
<laughs> so that's why I I just thought if you got all the information, we would be good. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I thought it was funny that she whistled to get your attention <laughs> to call you back because that's what I do often. <laughs> and, right, anyway, let me, let me keep reading okay. my excerpt. You may continue. All right. Once Karen was with us again, Betty went over the animals we might encounter on the hike. She turned her notebook to a page with a picture of a black bear and a mountain lion. She first pointed to the mountain lion and said, if you see this one, there's nothing you can do. So I'll tell you about the bear instead. Already, we felt more confident. (laughs) Betty told us about a black bear that frequents the trail and what to do if we came across him. After the orientation, we signed the backcountry permit and we were free to do the hike. On the trail, we quickly learned why Ranger Betty tried to discourage us. The beginning of the trail was nearly vertical. We struggled in several places, trying not to fall and slide on our butts down into the canyon. And we hadn't even gotten to the chain yet. After about a quarter of a mile, we called it quits and climbed back up. We had to use our hands to pull ourselves up the trail, grabbing tree trunks and roots. The hike lasted about as long as the orientation. (laughs) Part of the deal with backcountry permits is you have to turn them back into the visitor center when you finish the hike so they know who to go looking for, meaning rescue, at the end of the day. I snuck into the visitor center hoping to slip the permit back to the cashier in the bookstore and leave before Betty saw me. But as if on cue, Betty came around the corner as I reached the counter. I handed her the permit and silently blamed Karen by tilting my head toward the parking lot. Betty could see her standing out there, fixing her hair in the reflection of our car's window. There was no reason to let Betty think we were both lame. <laughs> so that was pr- that was pretty funny. That was a pretty funny yeah. instance. And, you know, huge, huge lesson learned on that. We also were not aware, really, of what the verticality of a hike means at that point, right? I mean, 1,800 feet, obviously, didn't send in any... In a mile? W- yes. In a mile, didn't send any warning signals through our brains, right? Like it would now. Now we would be, oh, oh, hell no. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Well, and maybe this is why the Black Canyon of the Gunnison Visitor Center carries our books. I think it is. I think this is like, everybody read this and don't be like these people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we could do that public service announcement for them. (laughs) But we learned so much on that. What is it they say? You always learn from your mistakes. I do feel like 13 years later, we are different people than we were back then. I mean, it's kind of mortifying to listen to that because we have changed so much. But it is still funny to think of how how green we were back then. Green. Now we're just old. (laughs) (laughs) Older and wiser, though. Yeah. Anyway, Michaela, that's one of the kind of mortifying slash funny things that happened to us along the journey. There are a lot of others that we wrote about in Dear Bob and Sue, our first book, and then uh, season two and season three. So this would be a good time to plug our books, Matt. (laughs) That's right. I think you just did. We wrote three books about our travels to the national parks and one about our trip down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon called Dory's Ho. So we have four books out there. Yes. You can find all of those on Amazon. And they would make great holiday gifts as well. Anyway, appreciate the question, Michaela. It's a great one. If any of you listening have a question for our mailbag episodes, you can email those to us at mattandkarensmith at gmail.com. 
Thanks for tuning in today, and a special thanks to all of you who support us over on our Patreon account. Yes, we have been doing this podcast for, what, almost four years now, Matt? Yeah, right about four years. <laughs> so, if any of you have found it helpful, and maybe you've gotten some good tips for your park visits, please consider joining us over on Patreon, where for $5 a month, you can support us financially, and also receive some bonus content that we create just for Patreon members. Yeah, you can go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, for people who aren't familiar with it, and just search for Matt and Karen Smith. We also have a link to our Patreon account that you can follow in the show notes of this episode. That's right. It was fun hanging out with you all today, and we will be back next week with our Halloween episode that you won't want to miss. 